So if you had to define the word unity, how would you do it? Unity. You know, it's something we hear a lot about and see very little of (laughs) in our world. We agree on that. A lot of people want to talk about, uh, we're going to bring everyone together. And then they do everything they can to divide. And yet, within the church, within Christianity, one of the most important aspects of our faith, one of the true treasures of the faith, is Christian unity. In fact, it's so important that in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, Father, let them be one, even as you and I are one. Now think about the the depth of that. Let them be one. Jesus is praying and he says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And yet we see throughout churches in our country, we're divided over every little thing we can divide over. And I mean that. It's it's kind of reached the point of ridiculous if you look at it. I mean, we, we got, you know, traditional church, rock and roll church, country church. And I mean, it, it, we, we now have churches that are forming strictly on the basis of we need to be diverse. Diversity church, which to me seems weird because all are one in Christ and we shouldn't be focused on worldly definitions of diversity. We should be focused on the gospel. And so what does it mean to be united in the faith, to have true unity? Well, this week in 2 Corinthians, we're going to see in verses 11 through 15 what Paul means by that. And it comes down to mission and unity are are the things that are going to drive much of who we are as a church. And When we find out what Christian unity really is, we find out there's a lot of room to disagree on a lot of things and still love each other and still serve powerfully together. You know, one of the things that I I see is I don't ever see in Scripture Paul writing to a church that they need to agree over a style of music. I don't ever see him writing that they need to agree over how people are to dress on Sunday morning. I don't see, you know, a lot of the things that if you if you take American church history over the last 40, 40 years. Some of the silly things that churches have split over, some of the things that there have been disunity regarding, you won't really find it anywhere in Scripture as a hill not only to not die on, but to even bring up. And I find it funny because it's just not a discussion. So many of these things are not discussions in Scripture, and I think the reason for that is because if we're arguing about certain things over here, then that means we are not engaging in the mission that God has called us to engage in. You know, there's a, a saying that, God gave me several years ago as I was dealing with some division in a church, and it was, it's kind of hard to rock the boat if you're busy rowing it. 
And a, a catchphrase during that season of ministry used to be, get your oar in the water. <laughs> and, and, and only say that because sometimes I think we invent problems, don't we? If we're not engaged in the true mission of the church, then that means within our faith life, within our community, within our, our body collective as the church, we're going to have a lot of time to do thinking about other things then if we're not engaged in the mission, right? And if we're thinking about things other than the mission as the body of Christ, can that go anywhere good? That, I, we're going to create some, some really crazy things at that point to focus on. And, and so today, look with me in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15, and we're going to see how Paul, he focuses in. So now, remember last week, he said, you know, we're always of good courage. So he's, he's feeling good about things. He has hope. He's encouraged about what God is doing. And now, listen to what he says, verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, what Paul just did was he, he really just drew a line in the sand. It doesn't sound like it, does it? You know why? Because he's not fighting with them. <laughs> so lines in the sand don't look like lines in the sand when we're not in conflict. When, when we're not in disagreement and we're not arguing, then when we lay down something that is a, a true marker, we can accept it as a marker instead of as a challenge. But he just drew a line in the sand, and he said, this is all about the fear of the Lord. That is what this is about. It's about it for him. It is about it for everyone else. It is about the fear of the Lord. Now, he didn't say it in so many. Uh, he does at the beginning. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But he kind of returns to that theme throughout this section. And so what he was facing, remember, he had some false teachers that had come into Corinth, and they were challenging who he was. They were saying he wasn't a true apostle, and they were the true apostles. They were the ones that, that should be listened to because they had the credentials. They had the look, apparently, because he said they focused on outward appearances. So apparently they dressed right, they looked right, they sang the right songs. I don't know what they did, but they were causing division. And Paul, instead of attacking them personally, what does he do? He calls everybody back to the gospel. And he says, if you pay attention, I have told you about Jesus. I have lived exactly what I have told you to do. My life has been consistent with the gospel that I preach. And so if people want to compare, here's what I want you to look at. 
And it comes down to the fear of the Lord. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. This is something that is established in his life. He's not learning it as he goes. This was something that was done early that everything is flowing from. His ministry, his life, how he relates to people, how he processes the world, it is all based in the fear of the Lord. Now, I want you to, when you hear that word, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, does it bother you? Is it a good phrase? Is it a confusing phrase? I know people that they've talked to me and they say that phrase always confuses me because I see God as a loving father that I can go to at all the time and and he receives me and he forgives me and, and he strengthens me and he provides for me and I just don't understand why I would fear him. And what I ask after that is what you just described as a loving father. Did you fear or would you fear upsetting a loving father? Would that be something you wouldn't want to do to get crossways with him? And they always say, well, yeah. I said, then you you really do kind of understand the fear of the Lord. You want to please him. You don't want to get out of step, but not because you're afraid of him, but because you just you don't want to. You know, there are people in your life that it would just break your heart to truly disappoint them, you know, to to do something wrong and and to intentionally hurt them. And and everything inside us would say, no, don't do that. You know, this person means too much. And that's what Paul is saying. He goes, I understand who God is. And no, we don't want to get crossways with God. If you want to really know what it's like to get crossways with God, read through the Old Testament. There are several examples Read through the book of Acts. There are other examples where people did intentionally, you know, forego the fear of the Lord and decided they would act on their own. And God doesn't take kindly to that. And he does act. He does discipline people. But he has the fear of the Lord, which you know what the fear of the Lord does in our lives? It leads to the right application of truth. You ever notice you can know the right answer and still do the wrong thing? I mean, you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and see that. Can Adam and Eve say they had insufficient information? No, they had the right information. What did God tell them? He says, you can eat from every tree in the garden. Don't eat from that one because you do. When you do, you'll die. God absolutely meant what he said. They had the truth. They had all the information they needed. You know what they were lacking? The fear of the Lord. They didn't think he meant it. They weren't afraid of the consequences of going against it. Now, did they have any reason to be afraid of God in that moment? No, God came down daily and he communed with them and and it was a a wonderful relationship and God provided for them and he gave them this beautiful garden. I mean, there was no reason for them to be afraid, but they didn't have the fear of the Lord inside as to what will happen if I get crossways with God. And guess what? They didn't rightly apply the truth to their lives then. They didn't rightly apply it. And they broke God's law and sin entered into the world. It is the exact same process for us. We can learn and we can read and we can memorize Scripture, but if it doesn't lead to the fear of the Lord, all we have is the knowledge that puffs up. We don't yet have wisdom. Because wisdom is what? 
knowing how to apply the truth. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing how to use the information that is presented before us, knowing how to rightly use it. That is what wisdom is. And so for Paul, his entire life, his personal life and his professional life, they all align themselves under fear of the Lord and service to his kingdom. And Paul wants them to see that. His life was not divided between the personal and the professional. I mean, he can understand that divide. His life was not divided between personal and professional. His life was not divided between spiritual and physical. His week was not divided between Sunday and the other six days. It all ran under the fear of the Lord all the time. You know, a lot of times in our country today, we hear the phrase separation of church and state. But I'm going to tell you, I don't think that that's the biggest problem we face right now is, is infringing on that. I think the biggest problem we have in America right now is a separation between church and life. The separation of church and life where, where we learn spiritual things and we value them and say, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're us, they're us. And then we get about with our lives the, the rest of the week. And it's like that stuff never touches anything over here. Or if it does, it's just kind of a slight bleed over. And Paul says that's not what his life is about at all. He says, what I am is known to God, and I hope it's clear to your conscience too. Now, what is conscience? It's the seat of moral reasoning for a person. And basically, he's challenging them to say, see if you can find something in my life that's out of place consistently. He's not claiming to be perfect. He's not saying he's without sin. He's saying... I'm not leading a life that would cause a person to be concerned or that would cause their conscience to be troubled as to can I follow this person because he's morally questionable. Nothing like that is happening. And so we see the fear of the Lord is absolutely the beginning point for everything that we're going to do. In Proverbs 9, 10 and 12, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We cannot start to rightly apply the truth of God until we have the fear of God in our heart. Now, let me say that again. We cannot begin to rightly apply the word of God to our lives until we have the fear of God. Why? Because we will have no sense of urgency to apply this. Adam and Eve did not have a sense of urgency in applying the truth to their situation. If they had, they would have told the servant to take a hike. Hey, you should eat that. No. God said no, and and I'm not even going to consider this action right now. You need to go away because that is against God. But they didn't do that because they did not have the fear of the Lord. And so as the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Now, this is an aspect of the fear of the Lord that we oftentimes miss and with wisdom is that there is a personal element to this that we have to understand. In the end, we reap what we sow. And we can't do it for somebody else. Somebody else can't do it for us. There is a very personal nature 
to wisdom, to godly wisdom and the fear of the Lord that we have to engage in and we are responsible for learning it ourselves. Now, if we want to learn it, God will provide teachers. If we want to embrace it, God will show us how. But it comes down to we have to adopt the fear of the Lord for ourselves. And so when he says, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself, he's saying you will bear the personal benefit of your own wisdom. When you rightly apply the truth, it's going to affect you first and foremost. If you choose folly, if you scoff, what does he say? You alone will bear it. We can't blame other people. We can't do it for other people. It is, in the end, it's about what we do with the truth. Sow folly, reap folly. And so what was happening in Corinth is these false teachers were coming in, and this is what they were trying to tell people, is we know what wisdom is, and we, you have to follow us. And, and don't listen to this person. Don't listen to Paul. Listen to us. And they started manipulating people and trying to tell them how to think. And Paul says, look, I haven't done that. I didn't come to you with fancy words. I didn't come to you with plausible arguments. I didn't come to you with the wisdom of men. I came to you with Christ crucified. And only Christ crucified. And he says, and what I am, what I am is known to God, and it should be to your consciences also. You know how I conducted myself when I was among you. You see, Paul's holding up Where is wisdom actually on display? And I'm going to tell you, in today's world, be careful of anyone who has to force their way of thinking onto you. Be wary of anyone, whether they're standing in a pulpit or they're on a platform anywhere or or they're a friend, but if, if, if they require you to think just like them in order to associate with them, That is not truth. That is not wisdom. That is manipulation and control. And that's what the enemy does. What did Jesus say? He says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus wants us to know the truth. He wants us to accept it. He wants us to fear the Lord for ourselves and to live within the blessing that comes from that. And so because Paul knows what it means to fear the Lord... And when he says that, we've got to think of everything that he's kind of taught in 2 Corinthians here, okay? So based on the Lord's coming judgment of all, the promise of eternity and the eternal dwelling that he's going to have, he's, he's looking at everything that God has because he knows this because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. Paul actively now seeks to persuade people to turn to Christ. Now, do you notice the turn that happens there? Because we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade men. What happened? He goes from the fear of the Lord to the mission of the kingdom as a result. He finds who he is, his identity and his purpose in the fear of the Lord. He knows the truth and the truth leads him to his mission in life to persuade other people. And so his life and his message agree, and he hopes that people see that. That's what he wants them to see when he says, I hope it's clear to your conscience who I am. 
He, he lives by the fear of the Lord, and his mission is to share, spread that message of the kingdom of God and the fear of the Lord to as many people as he can. And it leads to something really interesting for him, and that is to be crazy for God and wise for each other. I, I'm going I, to be honest. This section was a little bit of a challenge to me to figure out how to preach it. Like, it's one of those moments I knew what he was saying, but I'm like, how do I say this? so that it makes sense. And this is the best I could come up with. He's crazy for God, and he's wise for others. And this is what he means when he says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And that kind of seems like he's drawn from two polar opposites, right? If I'm crazy, hey, that's all God. It's like he throws it on God. If I'm crazy, you talk to God about it. But if I, if I appear to know what I'm doing, just understand it's for your benefit. Paul doesn't build himself up here at all, really. But he does draw that line again that it's about the fear of the Lord. And look, my life, if you're going to question it, you need to understand it's all coming from God. If you're going to criticize, you need to understand the full picture. Because that is human nature, right? We love to criticize And you ever notice the further away you are from a problem, the easier it is to solve? I mean, I've solved the world problems 100 times over in conversations over coffee, right? We can fix everything. You know, you you get a few guys together and, you know, a couple, uh, a pot of coffee and we can talk. I mean, we'll have everything solved in a matter of 45 minutes. And yet, you know, when we get into the thick of something, it's like, what do we do? And we all kind of look at each other. I don't know. What do you want to do? You see, the further you are from something, the easier it looks to solve. The closer you get, the more complex it becomes. And the Corinthians were wanting to criticize him for the decisions he made. He hadn't, you know, he said he was going to visit, and then he didn't. And they were upset about that. And then they, they criticize Paul and says, oh, well, he's weighty in his letters. He's bold in his letters. But, man, when you meet him, he's underwhelming. And they criticized him for that. And, and Paul, finally, it's like he, he had to defend himself somewhat. And he finally just says, you know what? Yeah, I'm crazy. You think I'm crazy? I'm crazy. That's God. And that's okay. Like, he doesn't even argue with it. Yeah, I'm crazy. If I'm beside myself, it's because of God. But if I, if I have wisdom, it's for your benefit. So what does he mean by crazy? Well, he's saying, according to worldly standards, Christians will look crazy. Okay, we need to accept that. We need to stop trying to look cool to the world and just understand, yeah, that's what I believe. I've heard people criticize the Old Testament, talking snakes. You really believe in talking snakes? And I just like them say, yeah, I do. Old Testament presents a very different world than what we have right now. I'm not going to deny that. Were you there? No. I wasn't either. So I'm just going to believe the one who was there said it happened. Does that seem crazy to a modern scientific mind? Oh, absolutely. I accept it. That's okay. They can think I'm crazy. I choose to believe God's word. But if you haven't really thought about the basis of the Christian faith, Let me sum it up for you again. A man was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, died a substitutionary death on a cross for the sins of the entire world, for all sins, for all time, was put in a tomb, 
And on the third day, the corpse came back to life, showed himself to some people for a while, and then floated to heaven. Crazy for God. You know why? Because we know it's true. And we need not be ashamed of it. We need to stand on it and say, yes, this is what we believe. And don't try to explain it away and don't try to make excuses for Scripture. Say, this is what it is. Now, understand Scripture. But understand, we're weird. We're meant to be weird. We believe some weird stuff. Now, here's the thing. is, It's true. The only reason it's weird is because the world is so caught in darkness that how do you describe light to somebody who lives in the dark? You see, it's not a superiority thing. It's just that, hey, we've experienced something that you haven't. We know the truth. We know the Bible is the single most detailed and accurate historical document in the world being proven over and over and over again. So when it says this stuff, I choose to believe it. Does that make me weird? In the world's eyes, yes. Because the fear of the Lord is something strange to the world. And you see, Paul has just accepted that. I mean, he fully has accepted. When he writes to the Romans and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he means it. He's like, I will tell everyone that Jesus died and came back to life. I will tell everyone this. He goes before governors and he tells them, hey, you need to be saved. This is it, the name of Jesus. And they're like, you really going to turn me into a Christian, Paul? You think you can do that? He's like, I do. He, He doesn't back away from it at all. And so we have to be willing to look crazy to the world in representing representing Jesus. And you know what? You'll be in good company, okay? In Mark chapter 3, we're not going to read the whole thing, but the entire chapter, okay? In your small groups, y'all can. Y'all can kind of browse through it and and prepare ahead of time. But in Mark chapter 3, it starts out with Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. He, he has a shriveled hand, and they're, they're there, and, and they're in the synagogue, and, and the Pharisees are watching, and they're like, hey, it's the Sabbath. Is he going to heal him? So they're used to, they've already grown jaded to miracles, which to me is amazing. They're looking for, remember we like to complain? They're looking for something to complain about in a miracle. <laughs> and they're like, is he going to do it? And he looks at him, and he says, hey, is it good? Is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And they're like, uh, I'm not answering that. And he's like, stretch out your hand. The guy stretches out, hand is healed. Immediately, the Pharisees go and start seeking a way to destroy him for that. To destroy him. They want to kill him. And then word spreads, and the crowds gather. And as the crowds gather, unclean spirits are subject to him. So he's casting out demons. There are demonic possessions happening. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick and the lame. And so then all of this crowd is there. He starts calling people to himself. He starts calling his disciples to himself, and he starts teaching them what's going on. And so then after they're kind of done for the evening, Jesus goes home, and the crowd follows him. So this massive crowd, probably 10,000 people or so, is just following Jesus like, hey, I want to see what's going on goes to his house, and there are so many people. Listen to verse 20, okay? Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, 
They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Thought he was crazy. Mary, his mother, who was involved in a virgin birth, is like, you've gone too far, Jesus. Does that not strike you as a little odd? They're like, you've gone too far. And his brothers are like, dude, you got to quit. Look at that. We can't even eat dinner. You're messing everything up, Jesus. They thought he was crazy. Was he crazy? Absolutely not. He was doing the work of his father. He was doing the ministry he was sent to do. And you know what? He didn't care what they thought of him. He keeps teaching them then. And then people come in and they say, hey, Jesus. Your mother and your brothers want you. They're like upset with you. And he says, hey, who are my mother and my brothers? All these people seated right here that believe in me, that's, those are my mother and my brothers. Like he just brushes them off. And he's like, they don't matter right now. That's what I mean by crazy for God. Because God has a habit of calling people to do crazy things in this world. Right? And everybody's like, hey, God, I want to be used by God. Use me, use me. And he's like, okay, do this. And you're like, that's crazy. Well, do you want to be used? Because God doesn't do stuff like halfway. And God doesn't do stuff according to our logic. And so he says, do this, you do it. And you be willing to be called crazy. Be willing to look crazy for a time you know everybody thought john the baptist was crazy for a while right man that dude wears camel hair and leather and he eats grasshoppers yeah they all thought he was crazy till the holy spirit came out of heaven on jesus as he was baptizing them and they heard the voice of the father say this is my son you know at that moment john the baptist is like how you like me now I've been telling you for a while he's coming, and there he is. You see, we are going to look crazy right up until that moment when God moves, and, and he moves in what he told you to do, and then not only are you vindicated, but God is glorified. And we have to be willing to do that. So crazy for God, but then it says what? Be wise for each other. If I'm wise, it's for you. And, and what he's talking about here is that Within this crazy for God, within the body of Christ, we are to edify each other. And look, it is human nature to want to tear each other down. It just is. We are so good at it. Get a group of people together and get them gossiping. And man, what happens? We've just ripped every branch off someone's family tree and shredded them as a person. And they never even knew it. It's just something that happens. It's a sinful nature and it's something that we do. And I notice every single time in Scripture that Paul gives us a list or, or there's a list of like, here are the sins that, that are of the flesh. And, you know, it puts lust and envy and greed. You know, gossip is always in that list. Because God knows what our hearts are able to do to each other. They have gossiped about Paul. And that's where he says, look, I'm not... He, he, like, refuses to talk bad, to speak ill of the Corinthians. Does he have reason to? Absolutely. He could trash them right now and be like, you guys, let me list all the ways that you have messed up. 
Let me just hold it over your head how bad you've been. And he could have, but he chose not to because he wanted to edify them. Paul even wrote let no, in Ephesians, let no foolish talk come out of your mouth, but only, only what is useful for edifying others and building them up. We have to be intentional about the words we use about other people to other people We have a responsibility to edify one another. To build each other up. To encourage each other in the faith. And that's what Paul says. He he says, I'm wise for you. When I apply the truth, it's on mission for God and it's for your benefit. I want you to grow in Christ. I want you to know the grace of God. And so Paul is not living for himself in any way. And the intentional, calculated decisions he made were for the benefit of the Corinthians and the other churches that he served. And so he says, yeah, my logic may look flawed at times. That's God telling me to do things, and I wanted to come visit, and God changed it, and he wouldn't allow me to. So, yeah, it disappointed you, but remember he said it was actually for your benefit. It's better that I didn't have to come because then I didn't have to have a painful visit to you. You've repented and this changed. So now when we see each other, we get to rejoice. See, God gave them time to repent and they took advantage of it. And while they're angry at Paul for not showing up, Paul's like, it really was for your good. How many in here have ever been able to look back in hindsight of something that maybe you were upset at and then you realize God really did take care of you and it was for your good? How many times have we ever really apologize to God and maybe to others and like, you know what? I got that wrong. You know, those are those moments we kind of are like, eh, I'm just going to leave that one in the past. You know, why you got to bring that up, God? That was like 10 minutes ago. And so godly wisdom, personal spiritual maturity leads to spiritual unity. See, Paul is with them. He is united with them in, in in his gospel purpose and in the gospel truth. And he does call them to repentance, but he never breaks fellowship with them and is like, nope, done with you. He's praying they're not done with him. But you see, it was all put together through mission and unity. This is what is important to Paul because godly wisdom, personal spiritual maturity, leads to spiritual unity, which is the fellowship of the saints, and spiritual unity leads to gospel mission every time. Every time. Okay, it doesn't matter where you go in the world, you establish a church, you establish a body of Christ that, that, that is relying on him, that has the Holy Spirit, a true church starts to form, and what will start happening every time? They'll start reaching people for Jesus. They will start proclaiming the gospel. They will start calling people to repentance, loving people, and sharing the gospel. And they will be on mission for God. That is what every missionary in the world that goes into an area prays that that happens. That is what they try to establish. Get a church established locally that is mature, that is spiritual, because we know if they have the fear of the Lord, if they have unity, gospel mission will happen. Every single time. So if we're having to force mission, what does that say about us? 
If we have to force ourselves to talk about Jesus, if we have to force churches, and I'm not saying us, don't, don't think that I'm pointing fingers at anybody, but I mean, if, if, if we have to force the mission of God, then that means we are either lacking in the fear of the Lord or the unity of the Lord. Because if those two things happen, mission just happens. Mission always follows those two. Why? Because the gospel is the root. The gospel is the root that everything grows from. And there's a saying God gave me many years ago, good root, good fruit. Every single time. And if the gospel of Jesus Christ is the root of our lives and our unity, it will sprout leaves and fruit of mission. We will naturally, and I mean this, we will naturally start to gravitate towards, man, other people need to know about Jesus. He's made such a difference in my life. I want everybody to know about him. See, if we don't have the fear of the Lord, then that means we're not really applying the truth, which means we're not getting the benefit of the truth, which means we have nothing to tell somebody else. But if we have the fear of the Lord and we have the fellowship of the saints and the strength that that provides, we will naturally gravitate towards mission. And so I want you to see this as a challenge. Okay, our our personal wisdom must come from faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our unity must grow from common belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our mission must be to spread what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And look how Paul brings everything to one point here. Okay, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Now, there's a word in there that some people don't like, and that is the word control. How many of you have been here like, nope, I'm not going to be controlled. You don't have to raise your hand. But you wouldn't anyway right now. (laughs) I'm not doing it. (laughs) It can't make me. But he says, what, the love of Christ controls us. That is the fear of the Lord. He's saying, look, my life is managed by God. He tells me what to do, and I do it. It controls us. But notice what he calls it. He says, the love of Christ controls us. This is not a brutal dictator in control of his life that he has no say and no choice in anything. He says, what, it's the love of Christ. It's to his benefit that Christ controls him. It is the love of God, the unending, always graceful, always forgiving, empowering love of God, love of Jesus that controls his life and gives his life purpose and mission, and he submits to it freely because that's where life is. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Notice, he pulls that back to the gospel in a hurry. In a hurry, it is all about the gospel. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He just shared the gospel three times in one sentence. See, this is the root of everything in his life. He's like, remember what he says. He says, I didn't come to you with plausible argument. I resolved to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul just keeps bringing it back to center. And he's like, this is what matters. And if you get this, the fruit will grow. 
And no, we don't get it perfect, and there are times we got to be pruned. We know that. He said, look, you, you stay in me, you'll bear fruit. But the Father, he's the gardener, he's going to prune you. God's going to make us grow in, in, in how he wants. But he says, the fear for the love of Christ controls us. That is the fear of the Lord. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. That is a rejection of the world and its beliefs. And then he says, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is unity and mission and purpose. All flowing from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I see nothing in there about style of worship. And, and I, you know what? This is one of the few places I've been where people don't argue about it. So thank you. But there are so many secondary issues that just don't exist in that statement. Because Paul's like, they don't matter. It's not even worth bringing up. What matters is that we follow Jesus and that we are on mission for him. So here's my question for you today. My questions. Are you truly living for Jesus? Do you live in the fear of God? And are you intentionally trying to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? If somebody wanted to know how to get saved, could you tell them? Are you looking for people who want to get saved, who need the love of God in their lives, who are searching and seeking? Because I promise there are people out there. There are people in Pleasant Hill that are asking God if he's real and looking for anything they can grab onto. Guess what? We're his ambassadors. Every one of us in here, we are his ambassadors. Are you willing to take that message to them? Are you willing to look crazy for a time? If we're not, then nothing happens. But Jesus promised in John 15, 5, I'm going to close with this. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing you have the promise of fruit and that is fruit of the mission of god that if we are genuinely serving and walking in the fear of the lord and the fellowship of the saints that mission will result and there will be fruit from that mission how much that's up to god but there will be fruit and so every single one of us in here are missionaries in our particular circle God has given you a circle of influence that is unique to you that no one else in this world has. Are you using it as a witness for Jesus Christ? Now, wisdom will dictate how, and how you are a witness won't look like how somebody else is a witness. There is no one-size-fits-all in evangelism. There is no one-size-fits-all. There is one message-fits-all, and that is Christ in him crucified. We just have to be open and intentional about engaging people with the gospel. Are you willing to do it?